maybe we could just start with some really um, tried observation, right? Uh, namely, the question whether it makes sense to question the possibility of metaphysical knowledge as such. Such a question, of course, is nothing new. Such terms as metaphysics, a system, metaphysical knowledge seem to have fallen into utter discredit, at least when you come from the country where I come from, right? We are repeatedly told that the knowledge of metaphysics surpasses our means, for in this field we are in the presence of truth of a different nature to those encountered in science, transcendent, unverifiable, inaccessible truths, all of which defy in their integrity sentient experiences and the space-time domain, and therefore couldn't be neither hypothetical nor even a matter of belief, as Charles Renouvier already noted in his very good book, Les Dilemmes de la Métaphysique Pure. Now, philosophers, just as anybody else, need promises, and for sure metaphysics is not any kind of a promise, as Kitfine has pointed out. It holds out the promise of presenting us with a world view. Now, promises are only food for thought, unless they accept from the start, as Barry Stroud has recently argued, that engagement and metaphysical dissatisfaction are one and the same. Philosophers, just as anybody else again, also need plain food. And in particular, they want to be able to answer such acute challenges as those raised by relativisms and idealisms of all stripes, of course, which constitute a permanent threat to our genuine knowledge of grasp of the world. But they also wish to answer the integration challenge, which any rational being has to face, and which can be learned from the misadventures of Platonism in mathematics in particular, whenever he wishes to clarify the link there is between the ways in which we come to know the truth of such and such domain and the ways in which our beliefs hook onto the facts of such and such domain. And in fact, he wants them to be entitled to say that the claims he is making right, as a philosopher can be entitled to be taken as proper knowledge claims. For indeed, we are faced, as Christopher Peacock has pointed out, to, I quote him, the general task of providing for a given area a simultaneously acceptable metaphysics and epistemology, and showing them to be so. Now, how can one reconcile a plausible account of what is involved in the truth of statements of a given kind with a credible account of how we can know those statements when we do know them. And Peacock rightly so considers that this binds metaphysics and epistemology together, and that failures to achieve the integration in a given domain of our metaphysics with our epistemology characteristically show up as manifestly defective accounts of knowledge of what it is for a content concerning that domain to be true. So being able to understand that would be to have a key not only to the epistemology and metaphysics of a domain, but to the nature of ourselves as rational thinkers, as Peacock says. Well, in what follows, I'd like to make a few suggestions 
in order to fill such a gap between our epistemology and our metaphysics. Viewing things mainly from the metaphysical rather than from the epistemological side of the challenge today, I'd like to suggest that even if the path to be followed is rather narrow, since it has to avoid both false modesty or cowardness and temerity or arrogance, it is possible to show that metaphysical knowledge is indeed a perfectly rational aim, and that besides, in order to reach that aim, it's not only legitimate but necessary to follow a deliberately metaphysical stance along dispositional realistic lines. In so doing, hope to suggest some reasons to prefer boldness to humility in our metaphysical claims, namely in our claims to a genuine knowledge of things, of their real natures and properties. So my talk will be divided into the following parts, in equal length, of course, right? First, I, I shall say just a couple of words about the ways I have tried in several places, especially in the Cement of Things and in my inaugural lecture at the Collège de France, to defend a certain conception of metaphysical knowledge as a whole, right? Then I shall very quickly say a few words of what I take ought to be taken care, taken care of much more, in fact, than is usually the same, even at the level of the distribution of uh, the academia in the philosophy departments, where it is rather seldom that epistemologists talk to metaphysicians and vice versa, right? So there's a kind of separation of the domain to say nothing of philosophers of science and even historians of science, right? You all know this. So this is totally ridiculous. I mean, uh, from an intellectual point of view, it doesn't make sense. And I think that it is urgent that we do something about it in the, in the coming years. Okay. So, um, and I, precisely I give some hints at why, why I think this has to be handled. And this explains the, the ambitious, too ambitious, title, metaphysical knowledge, right? You've got to take care of the knowledge part, and you've got to take care of the metaphysical part, right, in both distribution. And it's not quite a, an easy thing to be, to be done if you want to do the two things properly, right? And this explains a lot of careers among young philosophers. I've got, got too much reading to do in metaphysics already, so, oh no, not epistemology this year, right? <laughs> Next year, okay, but not at the same time. And I have, I encounter the same difficulties, I can tell you. Um, okay, so uh, so um, I will I will then proceed to um, to the core of the talk. Namely, I'll try to show why and how, even among contemporary metaphysicians who take metaphysics seriously, very often the prevailing view is, if not of pure skepticism, of at least Humean or Kantian or Ramseyan or Lewisian humility. And so I shall uh, catch the undesirable epistemological and metaphysical consequences of such, uh, such a strategy. And then in the final part of the talk, I shall give the general outlines of what I take to be the most rational route to metaphysical knowledge, namely for scientific dispositional realism. Okay, so first of all, let me very briefly say what I've tried to show in several places, that namely why metaphysical uh, knowledge, um, as I view things as a whole, right, involves at least four equally um, important steps to be followed. First of all, any metaphysical inquiry requires first and has to do with its 
therapeutic basis, but not only, that one starts from the formal a prioristic framework of analysis, which alone allows one to obtain the conditions of possibility in terms of conditions both of truth and meaning of the concept that concept that we use, and to be careful in particular to make the necessary modal distinctions. Right? It is then necessary to see whether and in what sense the categories of our thinking and our language are not mere functions of judgment as Kant believed, but well and true the mirror of the categories of reality. Hence, metaphysical inquiry implies an a posteriori investigation and a confrontation with the empirical sciences. It is then necessary that the third step, and it is what I would claim is the strictly epistemological part of the integration challenge, to reflect on the way in which internal categories and judgments constitute knowledge a posteriori by comparison with the sciences, which are already constituted, but also by seeking to determine whether and for what reasons, for example, scientific theories are true, can be labeled justified knowledge, and demand or not a commitment to scientific and epistemological realism. So this is the third step, right? Okay. And finally, it's also important in the fourth step to examine the type of reality that these theories are talking about. The nature of the actual, namely, basically, either categorical or dispositional properties constituting it, the causal and nomical relations between them, and that which is necessary to guarantee the unity, in short, to make the cement of things. And then comes the time for truly metaphysical commitments. Right? So these are the four steps which uh, I think we have to take care of if you want to do the program. Right? So it's, uh, it takes quite a long time. Now, just a very, very briefly again, a few reminders about the epistemological side of the challenge, right? which I think sometimes is too much overlooked. I think that uh, uh, people tend to overlook the fact that we should, for, first of all, take care of the evolution of, some, of several things. And to begin with, with the evolution encountered by such concepts as metaphysics, knowledge, science, and take care also of so many important advances that have been made in contemporary epistemology. Uh, think about it as far as metaphysics is concerned. Very few metaphysicians are still obsessed by the search for eternal, universal, overarching truth. Right? On the contrary, the vast majority seek to understand our relationship with the real, something that we can do only by starting off from where we are and not from a view from nowhere, so to speak. We also need to know what's classified, as I said, under the concept of science, for only laziness or ignorance, or in certain cases, intellectual dishonesty can explain why some still grant credit to a positivist and scientist vision of scientific knowledge. No individual in good faith, and especially not a philosopher of science, could agree today that the concept of science or of knowledge which prevails is the imperial one still found in Kant's work of a complete apodictic system or one endowed with the virtues of necessity and universality. 
as Patrick Sopis noted some time ago already in probabilistic metaphysics, the term has to be conceived of more in a form that forces us to rethink not only certain absolute concepts, space-time being, but also the probabilistic stance and nature of laws, matter and causality. To note also the almost impossible access to certain knowledge, because it tends rather to be approximate, temporary, conjectural, fallible, and to give more than is due to the complexity of phenomena, doubts, the idea of search proceeding by trial and error, rectifications and falsifications, such as confirmation and verification. It's therefore not a sign of hostility to science. On the contrary, to know that it's characterized not by scientism and dogmatism, but rather as all normal scientific activity attests by uncertainties, trial and error, and incompleteness, which together make the risk of skepticism particularly high. And it's not surprising in that respect to see the extent to which this risk is present perhaps even more frequently among scientists today than among philosophers. And this, of course, has direct consequences upon what one may mean when using such a concept as scientific as applied to <coughs> metaphysics. At least when I use such term myself as scientific metaphysics, I do not equate it at all to naturalized or scientistic metaphysics in which everything should go. For irrespective of how closely they are connected, the possibility of a metaphysical knowledge or of a scientific metaphysics largely transcends the question of the, let's say, turbulent relationship stormy relationship between metaphysics and science. Because of such conceptual changes, there's nothing surprising either about uh, the examination of the skeptical and idealistic risks being at the heart of work in the philosophy of knowledge over the past 50 years, or about the fact that volumes devoted to this inquiry are almost as numerous as those that in their quest for convincing answer to the skeptical challenge have proposed various strategies to improve the very definition of the concept this time of knowledge by showing the extent to which epistemology largely transcends metaphysics and ethics, so true it is that the struggle against skepticism has to be wagged on all three fronts simultaneously. And you all know that in this still young continent that epistemology is, we can now distinguish at least four main ways to define knowledge streams, right? First, essentially, as a true uh, belief and doubt with reasons or justification, right? Along the, the Getterology, if you wish. Second, along a more Aristotelian model in what has come to be called virtue epistemology and highlight where you highlight the importance of the intellectual agent and the role of educating the agent's aptitudes or dispositions to epistemic virtues. Third, in a more Lokian or Williamsonian mode this time, in taking knowledge of the primitive mental state. And fourthly, in taking a more pragmatist or realist stance, where knowledge is understood essentially as a dynamic process of investigation, inquiry, evolving forms of practical knowledge, knowing how, just as much, or even more than forms of propositional knowledge, knowing that, together with the perception of values, and where at least as much as an analysis of the conditions of possibility of knowledge, 
an analysis of the conditions of possibility of doubt itself and of normative rationality is indeed required. This is indeed along such lines that I have myself tried to consider knowledge in general, including precisely metaphysical knowledge. Although I do not completely depart from the traditional, the modified and improved definition of knowledge rather than from a virtue-theoretic approach, I tend to adopt the view of knowledge viewed as inquiry, uh, mainly uh, to, to, to cut a very long story short. The aim of this type of inquiry or system, Socratic system of question and answers, doubts and beliefs, being to fix the latter and not to provide an absolute and definitive truth. However, my contention is that we aim at truth because we value knowledge more than mere justified belief, because we view ourselves as answerable and responsible epistemic and mental agents who are constrained by the real and commit themselves to their assertions. Hence, we presume not only as a regulative but as a living hope that knowledge is possible and this is indeed sufficient to dispose us to act. So knowledge is viewed, should be viewed, I think, as an inquiry, more precisely as a scientific and realistic method of investigation, stressing the necessary analysis of the conditions of possibility of doubt, rather than as a mere question-answer process. It also considers epistemic norms, to work both as constitutive principle and as goals of our inquiries, somewhat continuous with metacognitive states and emerging from nature. Thus it puts various epistemological, cognitive and metaphysical constraints on a possible new definition of knowledge which tries to combine several kinds of components. Now it seems to me that um, I don't want to go more into into this step, that um, you you have um, got an idea of the reason why, of course, all this in my mind um, should not orientate us towards some kind of deflationism about metaphysical knowledge, right? Indeed, the idea is not only to refute the neo-Kantian claim for an impossible metaphysical knowledge. Uh, relayed by both positivist and Heideggerian analysis, whether it be the outcome of our cognitive limitations, human finitude, or all the particular nature of the objects of metaphysics, or simply of its lack of object. It also involves not limiting metaphysics in particular to the analysis of our usual ways of talking about that which in a non-reflexive mode we see as features of the world in which we live nor to a mere metastructure, the object of which would be the meaning and which would constitute a substitute for the absent criterion of truth, as some have preferred to envisage it. No doubt, it seems to me that for whosoever wants to contribute to elucidating the cement binding things together, or attempt to reconcile in some ways the philosophy of nature and the philosophy of intellect, as the French Emil Meyerson wanted to have it. It's less a matter of proposing a system than of highlighting what Herbert would put it, the main points of that which should constitute a realistic scientific metaphysics worthy of the name. We need to accept the view that metaphysics is effectively the study of the most fundamental structure of reality and therefore coextensive with ontology, that its goal is truth, 
and that if it is still meaningful to ask the Kantian question of its possibility as a science, it is because it corresponds as a rational inquiry to certain characteristics that are sufficiently distinctive to be able to constitute the heart of an independent discipline and whose intellectual justifications are worth being explored. But such an agenda gives, of course, obligations for any philosopher concerned about better defining the relations between the knowledge he may pride herself on and that which characterizes the other fields of knowledge, and in particular the obligation to respond appropriately, as I have said, to the integration challenge. Hence, anyone seeking to determine the constitution of metaphysical knowledge cannot, neither more nor less than anyone else, exempt themselves from this. And this is why, from the mere epistemological side of the challenge, it's of course necessary to question the types of beliefs, truths, justifications that we may be dealing with in metaphysics. Are they beliefs whose truth stems from common sense? scientifically established truths, and therefore necessarily contrary to the manifest image reflected to us by the world, or beliefs that are really of a very different nature. Either way, what reasons, what entitlements, right, what justifications do we have for maintaining these beliefs, for favoring one or another conception of truth? for judging the knowledge of the things that it reveals to us as merely conceivable or possible or even maybe necessary. Right? So this is for the agenda from the epistemological side, very briefly sketched out. Now let's come to the metaphysical side of the challenge. What do we exactly know about the reality of things, about the, the properties? Well, I think, of course, that it is impossible to answer the integration challenge if you stay on the level of mere epistemology. You also have to determine what you know, when, and if you do know anything. And, of course, uh, against such uh, a pretense, uh, there are a lot of very good arguments in favor of humility. Humility in metaphysics has, you know, a long and rich history, or simply, some would say, good taste. When one considers all the various neo-Kantian, relativistic, and realistic, and anti-essentialist arguments that have been put forward, humility had its days of glory, in particular with the empiricists, Hume, but also more than one is often thought, John Locke, and also, of course, with the Kantians and contemporary neo-Kantians. You cannot go further than the ideas that are derived from our sensible impressions, such as the empiricist and skeptical motto, or our knowledge is situated within the limits of any possible experience and mere phenomena in the Kantian version. In both cases, the very nature of things is forbidden to us, both in terms of our access to it and in terms of its contents. From such a viewpoint, Kantians and Humeans are on the same boat, what we come to know are not the things in themselves, their intrinsic properties, but mere phenomenal appearances, either because of the receptivity of our sensibility or due to the limitations of our cognitive faculties, we cannot get out of the constraining frames of representation. Whoever would dream of natures or substantial forms 
or forever fixed essences could live in the wrong century. Now, when viewed through the prism of relativism, such a humility takes the following well-known form. Even if all things are not totally construed or made up, what we deal with are, at best, family resemblances and games, which allow us in such a continuum of floating and vague identities, all in all, to cope with the world as much as we can. How could we possibly and seriously intend to explain things, or even more to have the ambition to erect a system, the story goes, when we are only facing analogies, shadows, bits of things, which through the game of associations we can indeed appreciate, combine, or even identify, but for sure cannot approach except through our descriptions, stories, fictions, and tales. We shall never know the heart, and even less the cement of things. At best, when the tale is being told by science, as some philosophers of science tell us today, what we have some access to is some sort of veiled reality. This is very fashionable in some French circles in philosophy of science today. We know how it is a widely shared view to represent the world as a set of atomic entities with a space-time location, endowed with irreducible fundamental properties. Such a universe, made of solitary mosaics, peopled with individuals or substances, which are characterized by their intrinsic properties, may be, of course, traced back to Aristotle. However, at that time, we were still dealing with a world constituted by dynamical substantial force. Through the sieve of mechanism, the model has tended to become more and more barren. We are now left with a world of passive entities, merely linked through contingent relations, and all this in modern times contributed to deepen the gap between epistemology and metaphysics, and to induce in the end such forms as those illustrated by Kantian humility or human skepticism. Thus, it's not surprising that those who, in contemporary metaphysics, rather favor powers and capacities, take as a favorite target as much as Kant's model, Hume's model, in the guises has taken in David Lewis's approach. Let's recall what's at the heart of the first one, Kantian humility. An acute awareness either of two classes of things, phenomena which are knowable, and things in themselves, which are unknowable, or of two forms of epistemic excess, according to which the only possible excess is constituted by an empirical relation of affection through appearances, as has been well documented by Ray Langton, and then by Han Whittle, and by Dewey, David Lewis himself, in his 209 paper, Ramsey and Humility, but also along the lines of a more realistic reading of Gunn, as the one proposed by Ray Langton, we find at the root of such a Kantian humility the recognition of two classes of properties of things, the relational ones irreducible to their relata, contrary to what a Leibniz might have thought, which we can know, and the intrinsic ones, the knowledge of which is forbidden to us. In that respect, Kant's epistemic humility would be to a certain extent moderate, our knowledge is constrained by a limited accessibility, while ignoring the nature of substances and of their intrinsic properties, we know that there are independent substances, thanks to their relational properties, 
which do affect us. Hence, Kantian epistemic humility would have a wider scope. First of all, since sensible receptivity is largely admitted. Secondly, since there are many philosophers who, even when they consider that relational properties, and in particular causal powers, melt into or supervene on intrinsic properties, find that such a connection is contingent and that it doesn't provide any knowledge whatsoever of intrinsic properties. Take, for example, from Jackson's words in From Metaphysics to Ethics. When physicists tell us about the properties they take to be fundamental, Jackson said, they tell us what these properties do. This is no accident. We know about what things are like essentially through the way they impinge on us and our measuring instruments. It doesn't follow from this that fundamental properties of current physics or of completed physics are causal, correlational ones. It may be that our terms for the fundamental properties pick out the properties they do via the causal relations the properties enter into, but that at least some of the properties so picked out are intrinsic. They have, as we might put it, relational names but intrinsic essences. However, it does suggest the uncomfortable idea that we may know next to nothing about the intrinsic nature of the world. We know only its causal relational nature. Okay, so that is page 23 of from um, Metaphysics, the 1988 book by Jackson. So clearly it's neither here idealism nor relativism which lead Jackson to such a conclusion. Rather it's a certain conception of the links between relational and intrinsic properties. And this is also what leads Lewis to humility. If one thing is the basis, another one the causal power. And if the link between the two of them is contingent, then indeed we do not have access to the intrinsic properties. We face a something, we know not what, and we can only identify the property through the role they occupy. Okay, so this has been clearly shown by both Langton and Whitton. So, in a way, Lewis doesn't seem himself to be much moved by such a thing. However, is he right not to be moved? Well, on the epistemic level, maybe he shouldn't be too much worried, of course, because he takes the fundamental properties to be simple, not complex entities. Or again, structural properties, namely properties composed of other properties, of which it is impossible more or less to say much more. So, in a way, one might say explanations have to stop somewhere. If we were to reach the bedrock of fundamental properties, we would have reached the final end of scientific explanation, as he writes in his uh, Ramseyan Humility, I quote him. Optimists hope and expect that we will discover the final theory someday soon, or anyway someday. I share their hope and expectation, but I am not assuming it. Maybe a scientific research may go out of fashion. Maybe the task of fully understanding the workings of nature is just too hard for us. End of quote. Now, as everybody familiar with Lewis's epistemology knows, it's implied by the final scientific theory that the universe should not be in definitely complex location, otherwise science would never be completed. No doubt, then, some kind of humility is up to the point since we could never reach a complete knowledge of the properties. However, 
This would not be because of the intrinsic nature of the properties, which we can never in principle discover. It would rather be because as far as we might go on in scientific reasoning, we could only reach structural properties, which we would have to analyze further on ad infinitum. And since Lewis doesn't grant such a hypothesis, he has to acknowledge that the fundamental properties do not have a complex nature and are simple. Let's note incidentally that the properties might have a complex causal nature because of the nexus of complex powers which they endow the particulars they instantiate with. However, as Lewis also admits the human principle of quiddityism, he cannot accept such a view. Since the property which realizes a certain nomological role can realize different roles according to the possible worlds, then as uh, Anne Whittle has said in an uh, article on this, uh, the causal features of a property cannot be part of its intrinsic nature. So it may well be the case that we do not know such a simple unanalyzable nature for the fundamental properties which would be identifiable in this world and in other possible worlds. However, we have the means to describe them through the nomological roles which they occupy. So, in that respect, there's nothing dramatic uh, in such an ignorance. But suppose we grant all this, even if we do. I'm not sure that we can have the same evaluation when it comes to what is the case in terms of the metaphysical consequences. So let us assume indeed, as a primitive fact, such a human universe of intrinsic physical properties, contingently although regularly distributed along space-time points, as described by Helen Beebe, for example, in her 206 paper, Does Anything Hold the Universe Together? And in some other guys, um, in several papers that she has written since um, since uh, since then, although I'm I keep being very <laughs> not very much convinced by <laughs> by Helen on this, but she's uh, too human for me. Okay. How then, if there's nothing more in the nature of such properties, which are nonetheless supposed to serve as a basis of supervenience, can we explain their having so different? nomological roles. Is it not surprising that such properties in their intrinsic nature, in their identity, should have no causal bearing on what they do, and more generally, a fortiori, if they are taken as such entities as are assumed by science, on what takes place in the world? Properties are supposed to have a functional role which allows them to contribute to the causal nexus as a whole. But how should we understand the relationship between the intrinsic nature of a property and its functional aspect? It may be the case that the laws of nature are called in to serve as an answer. However, if such laws are mere regularities included within some Lewisian best system, the natures may combine with very different functional roles. And it's true then, then, we might say, as uh, Sellers said, that the intrinsic natures of properties would seem to be as substitutable the one to the other as pennies, whatever the content may be. So, 
Humean metaphysics claims to be an empiricist one and to reject any kind of entities that might not be within reach of scientific characterization. Yet it looks as if it does generate the greatest amount of mysteries. So if rationality is something we are aiming at, then we have to make another choice. And this is why I have, suggest to, have suggested to follow another route, basically along dispositional and realistic lines, which I have detailed in particular in the Simon des Choses, the main characteristics of which might be summarized in a nutshell, but then we can have discussion about this, right? First, I suggest to adopt a scholastic dispositional realism based on the view that there are indeed real universals, mainly understood not as Platonic, independent, uninstantiated universals along metaphysical realistic lines, but rather along, well, well, now I'm, <laughs> I, I talk next to Anna, so maybe I'm going to say horrible things for her, along Aristotelian, or more precisely, but now Giorgio is here too, so maybe uh, <laughs> I don't know where. <laughs> well, friendly Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Along names. more scoutistic lines. At any rate, what I take as a fundamental starting point is to say that the real is mainly defined as what signifies something real. So uh, exit metaphysical realism of all kinds, right? All kinds of externalism. Secondly, this goes together with semantic realism, according to which one has first to clarify the meaning of all our concepts, in particular the concept of causation, also have to determine the meaning of our dispositional attributions, to understand, for example, why reducing dispositional attributions to conditionals doesn't work, and why reduction sentences cannot tell us everything that is meant by our dispositional predicates. Thirdly, it goes together with the scientific dispositional realism, which aims at finding real properties and not mere predicates. Fourthly, a dispositional realism which assumes scientific realism as an abductive hypothesis called for by the explanatory necessity of science and assumes certain real universals. Fifthly, <coughs> a scientific dispositional realism which is essentialist although non-substantialist, namely, which calls for a new definition of essence, maybe a thinner one, close in many respects to a form of relational or structural realism, but calling for a redefinition both of essence, viewed not so much as a static quinitas or a pure natural kind, or mere bundle of habits, than a as a habit dispositional aliquid, I will explain this later, right? And of laws. The main, the main idea is that dispositions find their intelligibility in the conditional necessity of laws. In turn, laws are a true description of the world only insofar as they are grounded in what things can do or rather would do, in the sense of real metaphysical possibilia, which are necessary, although discovered a posteriori. 
So this is very <laughs> right? dense. So let me try and say a few more things, at least about the fifth point on which I will concentrate for the discussion, because I think this is maybe the most debatable aspect of my view and also maybe what might be of more interest for the type of things you're dealing with in the seminar. So, briefly put, whoever wishes to defend some form of dispositional realism will have to stick to uh, what I take to be four main assumptions. First, a causal theory of properties. Second, a conditional dispositionalist account of laws. So, so I, I, don't, I don't want only properties, I want laws in the picture, right? Some kind of aliquidityism or thin essentialism. And also, one has to take care, this is also a tricky part, of course, of the program, not only of efficient causation, but of other maybe teleological aspects of causation. So first, let me notice that in order to have a satisfying worldview, I think we're entitled to expect from metaphysics, and even if some properties are more interesting to study than others, a metaphysical examination of the whole furniture of the world. In other words, if we are to defend some form of full-blooded dispositional realism, we must at one point take a stand not only on sparse properties, but on abundant properties too. After all, there might be a sense, as Ryle was particularly aware of, in examining not merely the nat natural or physical dispositions, but the whole range of them, and as a consequence there might be a sense in defending convincing dispositional realism as regards moral or even aesthetic properties, as a matter of fact have tended to do a part of the job in my other book on doubt and skepticism, where I have a kind of view about precisely education of our ethical dispositions. Right? So I think that if you want to have the whole metaphysical agenda, you've got also to get into um, and to be a, a coherent dispositionalist. Then you've got also, of course, to deal with these aspects. Secondly, to come to the real meat, granted that one must admit some real generals interpreted along scotistic rather than platonistic lines, how might such real generals really signify something real? Well, my contention is that in order to be clear about this, we have to be clear about the fundamental fundamentum of the dispositional realities we put forward, and to that end have to favor some form or other of dispositional thin essentialism, as I said. What do I mean by this? Well, first, uh, if Let's say what it's not, okay, before saying what it is. Well, first, if we conceive such essentialism merely as a natural methodological strategy, or because, as George Molnar, for example, claims, anti-essentialism sounds so counterintuitive, right? I think we merely go half of the way, of course, right? But on the other hand, if we adopt such a view as, for example, Brian Ellis's scientific essentialism, uh, it seems to me also that it may well turn out that we don't get exactly what we are looking for, not so much because Ellis's position, despite its great merits, relies on a rather obscure notion of essence, nor for the reason advocated by Mumford that, I quote Stephen, remains possible 
to accept natural kinds into one's ontology without accepting their corresponding essences, end of quote. But rather, uh, because the concept of essence Brian Ellis relies on has more to do, as has been very well documented by Alice Drury, for example, with issues related to necessity than with what one might expect from a genuine definition of essence and cannot in particular be used to ground what Ellis claims it does, namely the necessity of the laws of nature. Indeed, we should obviously distinguish, and this is something that has been also, of course, stressed upon by people like Kit Fine, right? We should distinguish between df1, f is a necessary property of a, if and only if a is f in all possible words that include a, and df2, f is an essential property of a, if and only if being f is constitutive of the identity of A. When for the same and other reasons, the natural necessities introduced by Stephen Mumford to ground his lawless realism didn't give exactly what we need in order to identify the essentially dispositional nature of our properties. To say nothing of the fact that it is doubtful, at least that's my view, that causal powers should by themselves be sufficient and could dispense us with laws. Seems to me that we do need laws, and even more, if some or other kind of dispositional essentialism is right, most probably, at least for some of them, necessary, not contingent laws of nature. In particular, I think Alexander Byrd is right in his objections to Mumford's criticism of laws, according to which laws should be understood as governing rather than descriptive laws. And second, that science doesn't have a really unified concept of law. So that for Mumford, we could just as well give it up too. I think he's wrong on that count. In that respect too, of course, uh, Bird's essential or relational dispositionalism is more congenial to the kind of dispositional realism I would like to defend. All the more so as Bird is inclined to consider structural properties as being fundamentally relational, thus in perfect convergence with what science tends to show. And it may well be the case that contrary to what is most often assumed today, <coughs> essentialism should develop along relational lines rather than, than in the wake of substantialist models more in keeping with traditional Aristotelian logic than with what contemporary logic has taught us. By insisting in particular on the importance of relations, and at all events on the limits encountered by any simple subject attribute conception. To make myself clearer, it might be worth make, taking a closer look into what comes what some scholastics, and especially the Scotists, had to say about essence what they meant also by quiditism and exchatism. First of all, I think it's very important to remember that Scotus did not defend any kind of essentialism, and in particular, it was somehow different, somewhat different from Aristotle's approach. You remember the position developed by Avicenna and then followed by Scotus, 
which consisted in insisting on the neutrality or irreducible and positive indeterminacy of the common nature. Crucial to Avicenna's position was the view not so much that essence as such could be considered under two headings, in things and in the intellect, as the fact that it could be viewed as such in its pure essentiality, neither universal nor singular. The essence, or in Avicenna's or Scotus's terms, the common nature, was characterized by such neutrality or indifference to any further possible determinations. For Scotus, there are formal or metaphysical realities, which are not to be viewed as we call today primitive thisness, precisely because they are, so to speak, awaiting further both physical and logical determination. The point is less to insist on the necessity to think of essence independently of its properties, which belong to it properly, namely in distinguishing the essence from what makes it a particular substance, than to show how what is more an aliquid than a quiditas, or rather, as Ardo Denkel used to say, a substratum without substance, right, is necessary in order to keep or to found on the logical level, then, logical universality, and on the physical level, the quiddity of things. So to be a realist does neither mean to hypostasize Platonic essences, nor develop a form of essentialism simply devoid of the Aristotelian substantialist shape. It's first and foremost to admit, in distinguishing logical reality and real communi community, the reducibility of a common nature, which in itself is neither universal nor singular, although it is universal in the mind and singular in the things outside the mind. Second remark, I know that quiditism is not a very attractive position to hold nowadays, as John Hawthorne has noted, for causal structuralism in particular, quiditis are will-of-the-wisp, right? Or a way to say that I could have been a post-tech no matter, so long as my charity was present. But there is a confusion here, I think, or even a full misunderstanding of what for the scholastic quiddity and echaity meant, right? Contrary to the view we now have of echaitism, echaitas was introduced by Scotus precisely to differentiate formally the singular from the universal or the common nature. Again, in order to be clear about the various categories that populate our world, we should be careful not to confuse the logical, the physical, and the metaphysical levels of our investigation, but also to establish the right alphabet of being. And it may turn out that there are more than one or two kinds of essential properties. In particular, as far as the latter point is concerned, it's important to realize that even as both Scotus and someone who was extremely influenced by him, and me by him, in the sequel, right, namely the logician, metaphysician Charles Sanders Peirce, argue, even if material essences are dispositional, it doesn't necessarily follow that all dispositional properties are essential. The fact that X is hard need not be essential to, to X, even though hardness is a dispositional property causing X to behave in certain predictable ways.
More specifically, it may well be the case that we might identify the real nature of a thing, the essential meaning of the concept of that thing, with a complete set of habits that govern its behavior, thus no longer distinguishing between the essence and the accidents of a thing. But then in order to have a well-realized essentialist world, and not a mere mosaic of essences, either viewed as static quiddities or as mere natural kinds, or as bundles of habits, fixed by some mysterious glue, as Peirce tried to build in a consistent way out of the scotistic model, one should be able to account for the real binding between the various essences. If in the end all properties are essentially defined as dispositional, namely as entirely reducible to some of causal powers, how are such causal powers in turn supposed to be linked together? And again, how are they supposed to be really causal? It may well be that in order to account for this, something more is needed than first, mere natural kind, second, mere efficient causation. So may, let me elaborate this a bit more uh, as a conclusion. Right? Indeed, if we only have natural kinds and not essences, as some have argued, right, then it becomes very difficult to understand what is the real source of the intelligibility of a thing. Now, the purpose of the quiddity is precisely to specify for any given object the kind of thing it is. The very meaning of a word or significant object ought to be the very essence of reality of what it signifies, Peirce used to say. Now has he himself claimed against the two-static view of essence, as was still defined by Scotus, it's not the behavior of a thing, but rather its habits of behavior that constitutes the intelligible nature or real essence. Such a habit is a general disposition affecting the way that an object would tend to behave under certain types of circumstances. So Proust as well as Coote is distinguished between the essence and the activities of the thing, while not making them separate, as you very nicely put the matter, accusing Psylos of a confusion right in your paper. Do powers need? Okay, that's it. exactly. This is this is precisely the important thing, which of course may explain why you can be a dispositionalist to a certain extent without being guilty of the vicious regress. Right? Okay. So the the question is, um, even if uh, uh, you distinguish between the essence and the activities. The, the, the important question is how do you talk about uh, not only specific classes or collection of things? You have also to be allowed to say, you have to be able to say something about the relation, of course, of similarity, namely the sharing of a common nature that exists between the members of a given class. But Useful up to a certain point, this type of logical analysis simply doesn't go far enough, right? And of course, as the history of logic has shown, 
and was shown precisely by someone like Peirce, who was one of the, the uh, proponents of the logic of relations, right? Uh, at one point, you've got to analyze relationships other than that of resemblance of a certain object to the various members of its class. It's much more important to make out the way in which laws govern the interactions between objects within a meaningful process. For example, the analysis of such a process or system for purse involved the use of dyadic and triadic predicates. When you claim, for example, that X is hard, you do nothing more than simply ascribe a particular quality. You rather assert that under certain specifiable conditions, X will tend to behave in a certain specifiable manner. Thus, hardness is to be regarded as a dispositional property, and a real habit or law must govern the behavior of those objects within which it inheres. So the relationship between a thing and its properties can only be defined by a real habit, what he called a would-be, operating within the actual world of objects and events. So, in, if that is a correct account of the way you should deal with the way things bound together, right, and avoid the vision of a kind of mysterious glue, then you better uh, try to specify not only the generality that characterizes a collection of objects having some quality in common, but to account for the infinite number of real possibilities, the real and continuous relationship that exists between any two members of a class, between an object and its excessive actualizations in time, between the interactive fragments of a system. And this is only um, uh, just arguing that there are real relations, but also that relations comprise the real natures of things. So habits accounts for an object's essential intelligibility. Habits are laws that govern objects by relating, again, certain types of behavior to specific kinds of circumstances. As a consequence, the essence of a thing is defined not by any particular relationship or activity within which the thing actu actually uh, participates, but by a general habit that determines those relations and activities to which, given the appropriate conditions, that thing would be disposed. Such habit is not simply essential to, but rather must be of the essence of the thing. Namely, it must be predicated of the thing per se primo modo, right? So it, there's a kind of there are not two things, right? There's not the essence and the entity or the activity, just one and the same thing. So, third and last remark. I think we can draw from this an important lesson. If we are looking for the essence of a thing, and if that essence is no collection of properties, but is rather a special habit of action, more specifically a bundle of habits for a low cluster, it may well be that we're going to need more than mere efficient causation in order to account for the way it exerts its causal power as a whole. Not only do we have to view the thing in terms of final cause specifying the general patterns of behavior that a given object or organism will tend to manifest,
which amounts to saying that what a thing is may be best defined by what that thing is to become, which is a way to say that the causal function of the essences of things may be appropriately defined in terms of both formal and final causation. But we may have to view the finding, the bindings of all the objects itself, uh, as Peirce and more recently Brian Ellis himself, in fact, suggested, in terms of some final or intentional causation. At all events, this needs to be carefully elaborated, as well as the exact role played both by disposition and by laws of nature in the intelligibility of nature. My contention here is that both are required. Dispositions could find their intelligibility in the conditional necessity of laws, but laws would only be a true description of the world, provided they were grounded in what things can do in a dispositional and not merely possibilistic sense. So, some morals. I think that if the fundamental physical properties are categorical and intrinsic, we cannot even know that they are so. In which case, what reason do we have to suppose it? Inversely, if we characterize properties in dispositional terms, then we have a cognitive access to their properties through the effects they produce. If following such philosophers as Shoemaker, Mumford, Bird or Ellis, we emphasize that properties are dispositions or causal powers, we can show how they produce other properties through the effects they generate and also how they do it, not regularly but necessarily, because they are not mere potentialities but real powers from which laws of nature proceed, in some cases, in some cases necessarily, and not in an artificially imposed manner. Well, could we dream of a better agreement between metaphysics and epistemology? For sure. Such a dispositional realist model for properties, as the one I have suggested, is not the only one that can be provided when one wishes to reject the neo-human model, and it has also some common aspects, uh, which I didn't have the time to elaborating the talk today, which I've done elsewhere, and we can also elaborate it in the discussion, with some kinds of structuralism, right, which prefer a characterization in terms of structures rather than in terms of properties, be they categorical or dispositional, and in particular with some versions of causal structuralism. However, although I feel close to the latter one, I still uh, have reservations towards it. Among my reasons, which I can spell out in the discussion, there's the view that, as I said, without some kind of aliquiditism, one cannot go all the way down, since it is impossible, if you want to say what the fundamentum of things consists in, to come to be satisfied with mere modal or conceptual distinctions even in Spinoza's guise, which is again some recent versions of causal structuralism. Okay? For you need more than conceptualism to be able to say what a thing consists in, what its real being is, to talk like John Locke. Right? Such a real thing, its identity, is what makes the thing the thing it is. 
any radical anti-essentialism who take us to such a global anti-realism that it would surely be incoherent, as Jonathan Lowe rightly pointed out, seems to me. So without a minimal essentialism or a serious essentialism, meaning not a nersatz essentialism of possible words, nor a mere essentialism of act and potency, but what allows to specify for each object the very being of the reality it signifies, well, doubt, I doubt very much that we might intend to not even know, but merely understand what is at the root of the intelligibility of things. And this is why it seems to me that um, the type of dispositional realism I just, I very sketchily um, gave some of the outlines, right, constitutes what I might call a reasoned metaphysical boldness, right, uh, in relying on a causal and dispositional theory of properties, in defending conditional dispositionalist account of laws, together with a categorical scholastic realism uh, which does not exclude resorting to a certain aliquidism and to another account of causation than the one inhering to mere properties. All in all, it seems to me that subversion of what might, I hope, overcome some metaphysical humility, right, and uh, without driving us into too much boldness or uh, arrogance. I think at least, I hope that uh, its main work would help um, fighting against all kinds of Humean, Kantian, Stroudian skepticism or subtile forms of neo-Pyrrhonisms and rather favor metaphysical engagement, satisfaction and optimism. And as I said in the beginning of my talk, just as anybody else, uh, philosophers need plain food, right? Of course, today I hope to have provided only some food, at least, for thought. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed.